love is love? One of the prevailing most common and accepted beliefs of our time is summarized in the phrase, love is love. I'm sure you've heard it. Maybe you saw it on a commercial or a TV show or a movie or something. Maybe a friend said it. Love is love. One woman described what love is love means for her on bustle.com. It means being able to love my wife in public, indoors and outdoors, to not hide our love, to be able to hold hands, to stay married, and not live in fear that our rights and our marriage will be revoked, being able to love my wife freely. Another said this, love is love, no matter what type of adversity we're going to face, we're going to be together. This movement is one of unity. It just seems like generation after generation, we have to fight the same oppression. You have elitists, you have bigots, you have racists, but at the same time, we've also had freedom writers, civil rights activists. We still have the people willing to fight for one another and protect human rights. That's what love is love is. And it doesn't matter what face it comes from. Finally, Another woman said this, love is love means to me that we all should be able to love how we want and there's nothing wrong with any kind of love. Love is going to save our planet. There's a lot of troublesome and problematic language in what I've just read to you, of course. But love is love, to kind of summarize and distill it all, is the idea that love expressed by an individual or couple or a thruple or whatever is valid no matter what. It's a common belief in our world that there are really no boundaries to love. And this idea of having no boundaries comes from a postmodern secular humanist worldview that says there is no objective truth over the world. There are only individual or group truths. There is no objective truth to search for, to chase after. Because of that, there's really no authority. And if there's no authority who is overseeing those boundaries, then there are no boundaries at all or anywhere. Postmodernism tries to deconstruct and take apart every institution we know. Every boundary must be torn down because if there's no boundary, there's no authority. There is an authority over the boundary. That authority, according to them, must be evil because they achieved that authority through evil means. Everything we know about reality has to be turned completely upside down. Revolution must take place. And I'll be honest... This is a very frustrating world to live in. And right now, the world around us is attempting to force Christians to squeeze them into it so that we would live according to their rules. John Bloom of Desiring God writes this, Deconstruction is a critical dismantling of a person's understanding of what it means to be an evangelical Christian, and in some cases, a refusal to recognize as authorities those perceived as occupying privileged evangelical institutions and positions who supposedly seek for God. In his book, Deconstructing Evangelicalism, this man, Jamin Hubner, writes, Deconstruction simply refers to the process of questioning one's own beliefs that were once considered unquestionable due to experiences, reading widely, 
engaging in conversations with quote-unquote the other and interacting in a world that is now more connected and exposed to religious diversity than ever before. Deconstruction is the method. Deconversion, however, is the overall goal. Well, the Bible begins with a marriage, and it ends with a marriage, and marriage appears all over the place in Scripture. Marriage is so incredibly important to God because of what it intended to represent. God gave marriage for a purpose, a reason. As Lord of heaven and earth and creator of all things, God determines truth. God determines love, and God determines marriage. He is the authority, and He created the boundaries. Before we briefly look at Genesis, it's really important that we understand the context. Moses wrote this to the second generation of Israelites on the plains of Moab, getting ready to head into the land of Canaan. And what do we know about the Canaanites? Well, we know a lot of things. We know they were vile. There were no boundaries for them. There were no boundaries for their marriages, no boundaries for their worship, no boundaries for raising children. There were no boundaries for their love. They did whatever was right in their own eyes, and it was awful. But in spite of all that, Israel was supposed to be different than all the nations that they were entering into. Genesis chapter 2, 18 through 24, Moses writes, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone and make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them, whatever the man called every living creature that was its name. Verse 20, the man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field, but for Adam there is not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed it up with its flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of a man. Verse 24, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Again, there were all kinds of ideas about love and marriage and relationships in Canaan. And what did God say to Israel? Don't be like them. He says, this is what love and marriage is supposed to look like. This is the type of marriage that represents me. I am defining marriage for you. I'm defining love for you. Here it is. It's one man, one woman, male and female, fit for one another. A marriage covenant that lasts until death. The two will become one flesh. Therefore, within the first two chapters of the Bible, before we get to Sodom and Gomorrah, before we get to Judah and Tamar, before we get to the law of Moses, God has already laid the boundaries. Any kind of sexual activity that takes place outside of a male and female marriage is wicked before God and must be repented of and run from. It will destroy your body and your soul. 
God was in essence, he was saying, Israel, when you watch the other nations doing other things, you might feel like you want to love like they love and marry like they marry and experience what they experience and look at what they look at. But that kind of love and that kind of marriage and those kind of actions don't represent me. And because of that, it is sin. It is disobedience, transgression. God does not conform and change to our ideas of love and marriage and pleasure. We conform to his, no matter the cost, no matter the pain. Now let's look at another passage. Matthew 19, 3 through 6 says, And the Pharisees came up to him and tested Jesus by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Verse 4, he answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. So verse 2 tells us that large crowds were following Christ. And Christ, being God himself, knew the heart of every single person. He knew the lusts, every twisted thought and desire that every single person in that crowd had. Every feeling, every relationship these people had in the background that they were hiding. He knew every idea of love and every idea of marriage each one of these people had. He knew all of their struggles, all of their doubts, all of their sins. And confronting all those beliefs about love and marriage and pleasure... Jesus says with absolute clarity that marriage is between a man and a woman. Fearless, courageous. He stands in front of the crowd and he he doesn't change things. He isn't in the least bit fuzzy. He doesn't move a bit from Genesis. He doesn't say love is love. Actually do what you want. Love who you want. Instead, he reaffirms the Genesis passage that marriage is until death, a lasting covenant in which the two people become one entity. The woman is fit for the man and the man is fit for the woman. This would have been offensive to those who had other ideas of love, but it didn't matter. Jesus is the Lord of love and the Lord of marriage. He determines true love and he determines true marriage. And those people in that crowd that day, as well as us today, we must conform our ideas of love and marriage to his. Genesis 2 would have been offensive to the Canaanites, but it's true. Marriage is between a man and a woman. Matthew 19 would have been offensive to the Romans of that day and to certain men and women in the crowd that day. But what Jesus said was true. He told the truth, which was the most loving thing he could do. Love is what God says it is. And marriage is what God says it is. And by honoring and submitting ourselves to God's type of love in marriage, We are sticking out like sore thumbs. By honoring God's kind of marriage and holding it as sacred, we look and act different than everyone else. But that's the point. Now, one other thing. I want to look at a passage in 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 3. Paul writes, This is the will of God, 
your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. Again, there is no fuzziness here with Paul. To sum up these three verses, he's saying, Christians, God has a plan for your life, and his plan is for you to be holy, pure, and set apart. And this includes especially your sexuality. There is no fog. Friends, whether it's looking at graphic images, glancing at someone too long, fantasizing, texting someone you shouldn't, or becoming emotionally involved with someone of the opposite gender that isn't your husband or wife, there must be a clear cut from it. Ephesians chapter 5 verse 3, sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Marriage is the only God-given context in which any sexual pleasure can be derived in heart or mind or action. We saw that truth in Genesis 2. We saw that truth in Matthew 19. Those are the boundaries. And Romans 8.28 makes it plenty clear that when God gives us boundaries, it's not to hurt Christians. It is the best thing for us. It's the most loving thing. This is where maximum joy and maximum pleasure is found. It's found in the will of God. So how do we flee sexual immorality? He tells us, each one of you know how to control his body in holiness, not in the passion of lust, like the Gentiles who do not know God. First, Paul writes that we need to learn self-control. We need to master or to know how to control our bodies. Self-control self-mastery. This doesn't come by just flipping a switch. It's not a one-time decision. It takes regular, constant, great mental effort, lots of biblical instruction and discipline. It requires knowing our own tendencies, our own patterns. It means understanding when I am at my weakest and most vulnerable and running away from those opportunities. We didn't learn algebra in high school by flipping a switch or just working really hard one time. It actually took practice. We had to stay in our desks. We had to keep our pencils in our hand and work, then do the homework. We had to shut off our TVs, our phones, remove every hindrance, every distraction. Wherever you find yourself at work, you didn't get there magically one day. The light bulb didn't turn on and you said, ah, okay, now I'm a nurse. Now I'm going to go build a house. 1 Corinthians 9 verse 25 says, Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and I keep it under control. Lest after preaching to others, I myself may be disqualified. We have to identify sin, we have to stalk sin, and we have to kill it. We have to put it to death. We have to do it over and over and over again. Sin is too deadly. It's too destructive. Don't play with it. Don't mess around with it. Put it to death. What I mean by that is this. Christ at the cross died. 
in Scripture says, because you are in Christ, you died with him. And because he died to sin, you too, by faith, must put to death that sin. Christ killed it for you. You simply need to trust that it's dead by his grace, and then don't mess around with it. It's dead. That's what the Bible means when it tells us to put sin to death. What God calls dead and powerless, you too consider it dead and powerless over you. Romans chapter 6, verse 10, For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. We are to know our own tendencies toward temptation. We must know where we're most vulnerable. It also means knowing what God has said. The battle is always in believing. The work, the discipline, the practice, the struggle is in taking God at his word that what he says is dead is truly dead. Then by grace, when we resist that temptation, we agree with God that what has to be killed has already been killed. I just want to end with a, a passage from John Street. He writes in his excellent book, Passions of the Heart. He writes this. What is the nature of the person who continues to harbor known evil desires in his heart, even though he claims to be a Christian? Given the character of God and his sustaining, sanctifying work in the believer's life, such a person has good reason to question whether he is a genuine believer. A true believer who persists with lustful desires in the heart will be miserable under the chastening hand of God. This discipline is intended to open his eyes to the truth of his hidden heart desires and to lead him to repentance and a purging of those desires once and for all from his life. The experience of the one who only professes to be a Christian will be different. As time goes on, he will grow increasingly comfortable in his sin because of the hardening of his heart and the searing of his conscience. Any unhappiness or misery is the result of difficult circumstances that are a natural consequence of living in sin, not because he's displeasing God. Maybe his spouse has discovered his secret, his sordid fantasy life, and the home is now a place of strife and unhappiness. The unregenerate person, regardless of painful external pressures, will continue to follow the lurid imaginings that he has come to crave. Through the deceitfulness of his heart, this false believer will withdraw, retreating to the secret world of his lusts as a comfortable place to escape from the critical eye of disproving family and Christian friends. Real motivation for change is non-existent because he is not truly living to bring glory to Christ. Having given himself over to his lust, he lives solely and intensely for self-pride for social expediency, or because he fears death and hell. If you are this type of person, the biblical truths of this book will not bring about the change you need until you sincerely repent and place your faith in Christ alone as Savior and Lord. Friend, if you find yourself in that place of pushing every boundary, of crossing every line you can, 
please know that there will be a day, God has set a day, that he will judge the world by his son. And you will face that judgment. You will stand before Christ, guilty and condemned, because you are in your sin, and you will be held guilty for every single sin that you have ever committed against God. Those boundaries that you pressed and you pushed and you crossed, they weren't imaginary boundaries. They are true, absolute rules and commands and laws of God that you were to keep perfectly with your life and you failed. So if you are recognizing right now the depth of your sin, the depravity of your heart, and if you recognize the sin that you have committed against a holy and perfect God, now is the time of salvation. You can be cleansed. You can be forgiven right now for your sin. By the end of this silly little podcast, you can find eternal life. Turn from your life of sin and rebellion. Put your faith in Jesus Christ. Trust Him. He died on the cross. He died for His people. And if you place your faith in Him and trust in Him, every one of your sins will be washed clean. Your mind will be washed clean. Your conscience will be washed clean. You will no longer have to carry the guilt and the shame that you are undoubtedly carrying right now. The wrath of God right now is upon you. And Jesus can take that wrath upon himself for you. All you have to do is believe. Trust that he is your Savior and he is your Lord.